Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back did you read with tim montgomery Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, and this week I'm joined by columnists Matthew Paris, Rachel Sylvester, and Melanie Phillips. We haven't begun to think about the political as well as the constitutional storm that will break if, after the summer, Scotland says yes to independence. I don't believe David Cameron should resign, but I think he'd be in very great danger. It will be said that he was too cavalier, too soft a touch in conceding this referendum on these terms, that he lost the union in a fit of inattention. We'll be in stormy and uncharted waters if the answer is yes. I believe an early or a postponed general election would be one of the results. Ed Miliband wants to remake capitalism. He says inequality is the new centre ground and plans to follow Barack Obama in championing hard-working families against a wealthy elite. He mustn't let this deteriorate into bash-the-rich class war, but he's on to something and David Cameron will suffer if he lets himself become the defender of the super-rich. I doubt that David Cameron could have anticipated the storm he would provoke by saying he was a Christian. Indeed, the odd thing is how passionately people deny that Britain is a Christian country. If a church attendance is the measure, it's not any longer. But its culture, literature, institutions, history and constitution are inextricably welded to Christianity, which, far from being bad for minorities, offers them a unique umbrella of protection. So those are our topics for today. And uh, we'll kick off with you, Matthew Paris. Now, first of all, remind us, you, you, you revealed in a notebook not so long ago that you had a bet that uh, Scotland would stay in the Union. How much have you got staked on this? It's a very substantial sum. Is it really? Yes, <laughs> but yes, you're not yes. revealing that sum. It's, um, I had a small pension thing that uh, matured or whatever these things do. And um, so I, I, it's not very much, but I, I put it all... On a on a on a no to independence, and I, not on very good odds. I, I, the odds are two to nine. So you, for every nine that you put down, you get eleven back. I still think that I'm I'm going to win this bet, but I think there's 
and I didn't at the time think this, that there's a 20% chance now that Scotland will vote yes to independence. But my, my sadness at losing the money will be um, exceeded by my, my, my sorrow at losing Scotland, so to speak. <laughs> Indeed. And your concern is also that um, the Conservative Party, the nation, might lose David Cameron's prime minister because there is a view among some people that David Cameron would have to resign if he is the prime minister who presides over the end of a 300-year-old union. Now, you yourself in the column that you wrote for Saturday's Times, which uh, Times subscribers can read at thetimes.co.uk slash Common Central, advertising moment over, um, you argued that there will be some who will press for David Cameron's resignation, but you think that would be a mistake. Yes. People are not saying yet that he'd have to go if Scotland votes yes. But I, I've no doubt that people will say that if, if, if that happens. Now, I don't think he should go uh, briefly because he was under a lot of pressure to concede some kind of a referendum or Scotland would have gone ahead with an illegal referendum anyway and that would have been dreadful. And who, know, who knows when you call a referendum what the outcome will be and it may be that he, he simply wanted to know Scotland's answer. But the impression has been given that he called this referendum because he thought this was a way to kill Scottish separatism by knocking it hard on the head in a referendum in which it was going to uh, lose by a substantial margin. That isn't now going to happen. And if we lose Scotland in the, in the wash, uh, so to speak, I, I think his judgment will be called into question. Melanie Phillips. I would call it into question, actually, because I think uh, whatever his motives at the time that he called the referendum, the fact is, as the serving prime minister, to preside over the dismemberment of the United Kingdom, the dismemberment of the entire country. And as I understand it, um, if Scotland votes to go it alone, the uh, constitutional implications will mean a degree of chaos, the like of which probably mm. our civil service hasn't got their heads round. Well, something and that Matthew well concedes in his column, yes. Um, and it's hard to think of something more fundamental than the prime minister of a country, basically dis uh, presiding over the destruction of his, of his country in a move which was eminently avoidable. I uh, take Matthew's point absolutely that uh, the prime minister was under great pressure. But ultimately, you know, it's the role of a statesman, it's the role of a prime minister to think, what if we were to lose this thing and to judge then that the risk is not worth taking? Now, he took that risk. And in my view, he should pay the, pay the price. Because he could, Rachel, have offered the Scottish people a multi-option referendum. I think Alex Salmon wanted Devo Max to be on the ballot paper, which the Scots would probably would have voted for. More devolution, but not full independence. By making it a straight binary choice, he and if Scotland does leave the Union, he will be in large part the architect of that. Well, he was calling Alex Salmon's bluff in a way, wasn't he? He didn't go for that third way mm. option. But I think you can't hold the Prime Minister of Great Britain responsible for the choices of the Scottish people. If they decide to leave, it isn't ultimately David Cameron's decision, fault, choice. And I don't think but he, he will can have be failed, blamed. But he will have failed to persuade the key in the men. He will have done, but it's not really... I, I wouldn't see it as a resigning matter. Having said that, I think there are a lot of people in the Tory party who will see it as that, as Matthew says. And I think there's a section of the Conservative Party who just want to get rid of David Cameron. Yes. And this will be the, the latest excuse. To be honest, I think they would try and get rid of him after this 
come forthcoming local and European elections if there was another candidate they had to put mm. in his place. There's a section of the Tory backbenchers who've never liked David Cameron. They've d always despised his modernising message. There's a class element to this. They think he's sort of too wealthy, too elitist, too snobby, and they don't think he's the right leader for their party. He's not Eurosceptic enough. He's not anti-immigration enough. So despite all the noises that he makes to try and keep them happy, there's a section of the Tory party that want to get rid of him. And they will use whatever excuse and, you know, moment they have to try and do it, it including be, Scotland. But it will be quite a big excuse. For it would be, use, yes. Yeah. But I, I think it's a sort of excuse rather than the reality. Melanie that's, Phillips. That's all true. And it is true that it would be Scotland's choice. But in the same way, it would be the British people's choice, for example, to leave the European Union. And I think that everyone would accept that, I think Mr Cameron probably has accepted, has he not, that if he were to lose that referendum, he would go. In other words, the vote of the people isn't really the deciding factor in these circumstances. If a prime minister has, A, called a referendum, B, been on the, wrong, on the losing side on an issue which is of fundamental existential importance to the nation, either its dismemberment internally or its accession to a supranational uh, government, then I think he has to go. If he doesn't go for the, that, what does he go for? The, right, European, right, the European referendum would be different because it would be a vote on his very specific package of negotiations in which his credibility and he had, he had personally put his own job on the line. I think that's slightly different. He's more personally involved, I think, in that. There's a crisis for the Labour Party, though, as well, in two levels, isn't it, Matthew? Something you say in your column, in a way, Labour Party, which dominates Scotland, they are in the lead, as Alistair Darling is, trying to persuade the Scots to keep in. So, in a way, they should be judged more for... Uh, a yes vote and also of course the political implications for Labour's ability to get a majority across the rest of the remaining UK will be profound for perhaps for a generation. Well it, it, it always was the Labour Party that was going to have to win this referendum for David Cameron that just by going to Scotland Tories tend to get people to vote whichever way the Tories don't want them <laughs> to vote and that, that was a little bit of a risk in calling a referendum that it was actually the Labour Party's job to win for the union. And I think we in England sometimes exaggerate the popularity of the Labour Party in Scotland. They're not particularly popular in Scotland at the moment, and they may just not be able to win it for Mr Cameron. OK, well, I think we could probably carry on with that topic for quite a bit longer, but we're going to move on to our second topic of the day, which is your topic, uh, Rachel Sylvester. Um, in Tuesday's edition of The uh, Times, you wrote about the significance of David Axelrod, the man who helped Obama win twice in America, uh, becoming Ed Miliband's strategic advisor. And you think we're not going to have so much a bash-the-rich strategy from Labour, but certainly a bash-the-super-rich strategy. Yes, it's the, the Axelrod strategy in America was it's, it's ordinary people, the masses versus the top 1% who are sort of floating away, the wealthy elite, the super rich, the have yachts, if you like, rather than the have nots. Um, and he's going to bring the same thing over here with Ed Miliband uh, and say, you know, it's not so much the inequality isn't so much about the gap between the middle and the bottom, but the middle and the very top, the elite who have the sort of the yachts, the grouse moors, the, you know, the top private school educations, the, the, the sort of basement digouts in Notting Hill. Mm. So uh, it's, and I think he's onto something. I think there is a resentment against a sort of super elite 
floating away from from the rest of us. And it's things like, you know, whether you see the anger with Starbucks, Amazon, Google over tax rates, or whether it's the oligarchs who are buying properties that they don't live in, pushing up the prices in London in particular. There's a whole range of issues on which people are increasingly frustrated with people who, it's not just being super rich, but feel as if they're not playing by the same rules as everybody else. Do, do you worry about this, Matthew Paris, as someone who supports the Conservative Party? Because the economy is clearly recovering. We heard on Tuesday morning that the latest GDP growth is 0.8%. Britain's recovery is perhaps the strongest of the major economies. But we saw in America that Obama won with a bash Mitt Romney, a put taxes up on the wealthy strategy. And in the land of the free, that message won 50-odd percent of the vote. Ed Miliband only needs to win 36% to become the largest party. Could this message get Mr Miliband into Downing Street? I think it's a fairly shrewd approach to a, a, a general election. It's, it's, it's rather desperate, uh, unable to say that the economy is not improving because it is, unable to say that people's jobs are not more secure than they were five years ago because they are more secure. All the Labour Party can now say is uh, some people are not getting richer as fast as the country is getting richer and some people seem to be just kind of tearing away uh, with their, their own personal enrichment. And it's always easy to whip up the anger of, of, of the mob, so to speak, against a few people, the super rich. I, I wonder, though, whether people may not see through it. I wonder whether people may not <coughs> think the Labour Party need to have more of an answer to what we do about the economy than, uh, than uh, attacking a few. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Super rich but largely irrelevant individuals. Uh, Melanie Phillips, uh, on the fundamental issue of whether there is this super rich have yachts class emerging in the Western democracies, do you buy the analysis that Tom... Uh, Thomas Piketty, this French economist, is popularising? There are super rich people. And as we know, London has attracted more than its fair share of them. But there's still relatively few of them. And I think there's a great danger for Mr Miliband here in incoherence. On the one hand, as uh, Matthew has said, there is tremendous popular resentment against the rich. But how are the rich defined? Very often they're defined as, for example, people on 100,000 a year and more. To some people, that is riches beyond, beyond belief. To others, it's what they can hardly live on to sustain a middle-class way of life. And this is the incoherence. Mr Miliband now has Lord Glassman, one of his most trusted advisers, um, who has come forward in the last few days and said, uh, Labour is in danger of being seen as the middle-class party and losing touch with the working class. And that is also true. Um, but I think that there is this problem of how do you define people who are wealthy? Because the middle classes, people who aren't super rich, feel that they themselves are being penalised. I mean, you know, bash the bankers. I mean, not all bankers, bash the barristers. Some barristers, some bankers earn a fortune. Others 
earn not a, not a great deal of money, but they're all kind of lumped together. And I think that either Mr. Miliband is going, Mr. Miliband is going to have to work out where he stands in relation to the middle class. That's his most that's mm. his most challenging uh, uh, task. Yes, well, Matthew Paris. This is what's rather shrewd about the strategy that Rachel describes. Uh, what the middle class may not exactly know who's middle class and who isn't, but they do know that the super rich are not the middle class. And so a way of attacking wealth is to attack the super rich while letting the middle class know that it's not you that we're, we're attacking. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Who is the super rich? How are they to be defined? I suspect that in order to get the revenue or the notional revenue, Mr. Miliband is going to have to extend his definition of who is super rich beyond the people who literally have yachts to what most of us would consider to be the rather well-to-do middle class. We know that taxes like the mansion tax, the bankers' bonus tax, these will probably only raise one or two billion pounds in total, Rachel Sylvester. If Labour really wants to raise money that will make, for example, a difference to the public services, they're going to have to raise a tax like national insurance, which will impact the squeeze middle, a phrase that Ed Miliband championed, the squeeze middle that Melanie Phillips Well, Thomas Piketty, who's the favourite guru of the moment, advocates an 80% income tax and a global wealth tax, which Ed Miliband's aides are (coughs) frantically distancing themselves from. But I I think your your broader point is correct, that the problem with Ed Miliband has alighted on a problem, but he hasn't really got a credible solution yet. And the problem, he's not taken seriously because he hasn't got a sort of credible broad-based economic strategy which includes sort of proper deficit reduction as well as some spending commitments. You can't just have an energy price freeze or a banker's bonus tax and convince people that they're going to trust you to run the economy. You've got to sort of convince people that you can handle the nation's finances before you can persuade them that you're in the fit person to remake capitalism. We've just had a YouGov opinion poll that shows that the Conservatives are now trusted more on unemployment than Labour, which is a huge achievement for the <coughs> Conservatives. But so I think Osborne is right to say to sort of be confident in this concept of it's the economy, stupid, the old cliche. But on the other hand, I think they, they, they need to be careful that they don't dismiss this anger, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, about the kind of wealthy elite, because Cameron and Osborne themselves are in danger of looking like out of touch, you know, Math- supporters of this super rich. Because Matthew Paris, this party of the rich label is still toxic for the Tories. It very, and the important thing for the Conservative Party would be not to respond to Ed Miliband's attacks on the super-rich by defending the super-rich, and not actually to take the tone that Melody, Melanie does, that uh, barristers and people like that may actually be struggling to educate their children uh, at, 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 at private schools on the income that they have. The Tories do not want to sound as though they're on the side of those people. In a way, they've got a parallel. Their toxic thing is party of the rich, just as Labour's toxic thing is lack of economic competence. And they've got their sort of equal but opposite problems. Okay, well, we could, again, go on, but we must move on to our third um, topic, which, um, Melanie Phillips, you've um, suggested for us, and it's a debate that's been raging for a a good week. And you, as as a Jew, do nonetheless believe that David Cameron's description of Britain as a Christian country is something you welcome, because established church, for example, has provided a sacred canopy under which all faiths can gather and are protected. Absolutely. Um, I'm always amazed by this, uh, by the uh, vituperation by which, uh, with, with, with which people deny, A, that Britain is a Christian country, B, that it should be a Christian country. 
as you say, I'm a Jew, and I think like uh, I think I'm safe in saying that most minorities, if not all minorities, value very much the fact this is a Christian country, because people beha- behave, you know, secular folk who inveigh against this. Uh, you'd think to listen to them that we were living in a theocracy with people, you know, being burned at the stake. Um, the fact is that we are governed uh, by a polity which is infused with a particular kind of religion, um, Anglicanism, milk and water Christianity. It's 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 very liberal and it's very it's very secular in, in many ways. From Alice Thompson described it as wishy-washy um, in her column last I week, would, approvingly. I would, hesi- I would hesitate to be so rude as to describe <laughs> it as wishy-washy, but from this Christianity, from what I would call uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, come the ethics which we all value, uh, belief in fairness, in justice, in equality, and compassion. And without it, you see, if you don't have this umbrella of, of, of uh, this carapace of belief, then you have a kind of vacuum. And in that vacuum, you have the Hobbesian war of all against all, in which minority ethnic religious group fights with other groups for power. And the weakest will go to the wall. And so without this overall uh, overarching umbrella, you have a recipe not for tolerance, but for major intolerance, which is why minorities fear the disestablishment of the church. And they value the Christian nature or the particular Christian nature of this country, which is there. It cannot be denied. It infuses British institutions, British history, uh, literature, law and all the rest of it. Matthew Paris. Any country's religion will infuse its culture, and I think we can argue till the cows come home as to whether Britain is or isn't a Christian country. As someone with no religious beliefs at all myself, I'd say on balance Britain is a Christian country. But what is absolutely clear is that it is a grave mistake for politicians to enter this particular debate. Even the readers of the Daily Telegraph voted in a, an online poll by an overwhelming majority that they didn't want to hear politicians talking about religion. I, I, I think Mr Cameron did not anticipate the response that he would get, and I don't think he's going to say this kind of thing again. <laughs> why, why, why did he do it, Rachel Sylvester? Because some cynical people have suggested it was a way of mending broken relationships with the church after the whole gay marriage uh, controversy. Are, are you on the cynical side, or do you um, respect them? Um, that he was really affirming his faith at the Easter during the Easter Christian Festival. I don't know why he did it, but I I would think that um, he thought it was a fairly uncontroversial thing. I mean, Britain's history, as Melanie says, culture, pictures, paintings, you know, theatre is Christian-based, you know, the tradition. Um, so I think he thought it was almost a statement of the obvious. Alice Thompson and I interviewed Sajid Javid last week, and Sir, who's a Muslim, but he said he thought it was pretty much a statement of the obvious that Britain was a Christian country historically, you know, even if there aren't majority churchgoers. But actually, I disagree with Matthew. I rather admired the fact that he did enter this debate. I thought that Alistair Campbell was far too neurotic when he said, we don't do God. And actually, I think people rather like the idea of a politician with conviction and with a moral purpose, not in a preachy way, but in a sense, the question I always want to ask David Cameron is, why do you want to be prime minister? What's the purpose of it? What's your sort of driving mission, if you like? And I think... He memorably once said because he thought he would be good at it. Well, exactly. And I think you want a bit more, or I would like a bit more than that from a prime minister, not just a sort of list of policies that they want to do, but you want to know why they want to do them. And if this is an explanation... (laughs) Good Lord. No, I mean, it would really give me the creeps if I thought a prime minister wanted to be prime minister in order to do the will of God. I really Not don't to want do to do the will of God, but you've got to have a, I want him to have a purpose. 
I'm, I don't want him just to float through. Melanie Phillips and Francis Elliott, our political editor, a week or so ago wrote that the Tory election strategy next time will partly be a battle between Gospel Dave, the idea of a big picture <laughs> conservatism, or what did he call it, George, um, retail, retail George, yes, the idea of George Osborne's specific pledges on pensions and tax. Uh, do you see a, uh, that those two can live together? Do you recognise that distinction? I, I find it hard to think of Gospel Dave um, <laughs> that really on the billboards. I mean, I think Mr Cameron's main problem is not that people will think, um, my goodness me, this man is doing God and runs screaming from the room. They will think, I don't believe him. Yes. Once again, he is try- he is telling me a-, a lie in order to gain my favour. What sort of mug does he take me for? That's the problem I'm afraid Mr Cameron's got himself into. Whenever he makes a declaration of principle like this, people give a horse laugh. Now, the poor chap, it may be true. He may be going along to St Mary Abbott's Church in, Ken- in wherever it is, uh, West London, mm. uh, and really finding that moment of peace, as he tells us, I'm prepared to believe that is absolutely correct. I mean, the man is, after all, a human being. One is prepared to give him that benefit of the doubt, surely. Mm. But there are many people who won't. And I think that's his main danger. He opens up that can of worms. Can you believe the prime ministers when he, when he utters, when he says anything? Can you believe a word he says? I'm afraid the answer is generally no. Well, on that, we will have to uh, conclude, I'm afraid. Um, Thank you to Rachel Matthew, particularly to Melanie, for her first time on the Times Opinion podcast. And can I recommend to all Times subscribers that they go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central, where we will include links to some of the articles we've been discussing, including a particularly well-read article that we had in Saturday's Times from A.C. Grayling, where he defended the uh, letter from secularists and that he made a very powerful argument as to why British culture wasn't a Christian society and some of you might find that interesting. So thank you most of all to uh, you for listening. Thanks to Dave McGuire, my producer and do subscribe to the Times Opinion podcast did you read via iTunes. Until next week, goodbye. I'm Gabriel Marconi, the host of the game podcast from the Times where we talk football every single Monday. We'll be reviewing the action from the weekend and debating on all the issues of the week. Head to thetimes.co.uk for more details and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.